it kind of seems like Kevin McCarthy never read that children's book called If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on today's panel, returning to the roundup is Zach Joukowsky. Zach is a Democratic political consultant from North Carolina. He's a principal at Title Fight and the founder and CEO at Brackish Solutions. Previously, he served as the campaign manager for Katie Hill's successful congressional campaign, flipping a seat from red to blue, and as the political director of the Lincoln Project. Zach, welcome back, as always. How are you? Thank you so much for having me on, Ron. I'm excited to be here. Also returning to the roundup is Politicology fan favorite, Lene Erickson. Lene is the Senior Vice President for Social Policy, Education, and Politics at Third Way. She also served on President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Lene, always great to see you. Welcome back. Hello, Politicology. And making his Politicology debut is Jim Swift. Jim is a senior editor at The Bulwark. And before that, he spent six years at The Weekly Standard, where he left as the deputy online editor. His writing has appeared in The Washington Post, The Richmond Times-Dispatch, and The Cleveland Plain Dealer. He also spent five years working on the Hill for Rep. Jeff Davis on the House Ways and Means Committee and Senator John Kyle, and worked as a field staffer on President Bush's 2004 re-election campaign. Jim, welcome to Politicology. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Up first this week, we're going to break down Speaker Kevin McCarthy's announcement that the House is opening an impeachment inquiry into President Biden, what it could mean for his speakership, the looming budget deadline, and for Republicans if they can't find the evidence they've promised. Then we're going to talk about what the inquiry could mean for President Biden and a new piece by one of his favorite columnists urging him not to run in 2024. Next up, we'll look at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling that the Biden White House, top government health officials, and the FBI likely violated the First Amendment in their push to get tech firms to censor or suppress social media posts. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to look at Senator Mitt Romney's decision not to run for re-election in the Senate his call for a new generation of leaders, and the excerpt from a forthcoming biography published in The Atlantic that highlights his reasons for leaving the Senate. You don't want to miss that. To get ad-free access to the show, plus lots more on a private podcast feed, head on over to politicology.com slash plus, or click the link at the top of your show notes today. Okay, on Tuesday, Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy directed House committees to open an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. McCarthy said the focus is on whether Joe Biden benefited from his son Hunter's business dealings, among other issues. About nine months of investigation so far, led by House Republicans, have not produced any concrete evidence that directly shows the president himself benefited from Hunter's foreign business arrangements in Ukraine or elsewhere. Uh, But McCarthy has accused Biden of lying to the American people about knowledge of his family's foreign business dealings. So before the 2020 election, Joe Biden and his campaign said that Hunter hadn't made any money from China and that Biden hadn't met one of Hunter's Ukrainian business associates while he was vice president, other than a brief hello. And according to both Hunter Biden and his former business partner, Devin Archer, both of those claims were false. This came in sworn testimony from both of them. In early August, Glenn Kessler at the Washington Post even gave Joe Biden four Pinocchios for those claims. Now, some members of the conference have said that's enough to impeach Biden, but the Washington Post is reporting 
that there are members of the conference, including Freedom Caucus member Ken Buck, who want a more direct link implicating the president that reaches the high standard of high crimes and misdemeanors for impeachable offenses. It was widely reported last week that Marjorie Taylor Greene wanted the impeachment inquiry to secure her vote for appropriations bills that averted a government shutdown earlier this year. But it doesn't seem to be working. House members, including Bob Good, Virginia, Ralph Norman, South Carolina, Dan Bishop, also North Carolina, have said they don't view the impeachment inquiry and the budget negotiations as tied together at all. And they're holding firm on their demands that the spending cuts should be deeper than the ones agreed to earlier this year. And they want to add provisions that would be unlikely to hold up in the Senate. So I think we should separate uh, the intra-party politics and the House shenanigans from the broader, you know, presidential context and how this is going to impact Biden. So let's talk about the intra-party politics first. Uh, Jim, why don't you start uh, and maybe you can explain the, 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 the tough situation Kevin McCarthy is in here, both the rock and the hard place. If all the things are on the table, what is the best path forward here for him to take? I forget where I read it. Uh, Somebody wrote McCarthy was cornered in all of this. And I I agree. I think that this was inevitable from the moment he took the gavel. That was part of the compromise, the way all those changes to the rules and everything um, really made him beholden to that, you know, fringe group of 20. Because I don't know, what do you call them? Freedom Caucus Plus? I mean, mean, Mike uh, Murphy's calling them the authoritarian caucus, but Yep, okay. He, okay. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll co-sign Mike, Mike Murphy on that. He's good with words. Murph is, uh, but uh, he's always been beholden to them, and you know their their strength hasn't been absolute. I think it's just kind of it's ebbed and it's flowed. And when it when it's ebbing, it's because they're getting more broad support from the uh, you know the, the kind of it used to be that you know there, there there were not everyone was in the freedom caucus and not everyone was in the study committee right so the study committee was first and the freedom caucus kind of broke out of that um it it's 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 just the dynamic has changed as the party has grown so far right so if those 20 people can kind of get a little following uh kevin mccarthy is really beholden to what those 20 want to do but they have to get those you know others to really kind of push it so i think that's what, what's happening here yeah. Lene, the impeachment inquiry is the biggest news story out of the House right now, but they are facing this looming budget deadline also. Um, and so what do you think the stakes are if they can't pass these appropriations bills? I mean, it kind of seems like Kevin McCarthy never read that children's book called If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. Have you guys read that book? <laughs> It's like, if you give a mouse a cookie, it's going to want a glass of milk, and then it wants the next thing and the next thing. It's been a while since I've read it, but you get the gist. That's where we're at right now. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin McCarthy gave the mouse a cookie, and now it wants more. And he somehow, I don't know how he thought this was going to go. I mean, to Jim's point, like, there was, he had no power here. He started to say, oh, well, we need to keep the government open in order to you know, continue our investigation of Hunter Biden. But then they knew that was BS. You can designate whoever you want to be essential employees. So designate the impeachment folks to be essential employees and you can shut down the government. You get your milk and your cookie too. So they're they're smarter than him (laughs) and he was painted into a corner. And I I just don't know how he's going to get out of it. It is very, very concerning to me because, um, you know, 
there are lots of things that we need the government to be funded to do. Um, but one particular thing that I'm worried about right now is that uh, we are asking people to start paying their student loans again for the first time in three and a half years. And the Department of Education is not prepared to deal with the influx of calls and people needing help um, figuring out where to even send their payment. And we're, now we're going to shut down the government? Like, that doesn't seem good. I, that's just one example. But I just, I really don't know how he's going to get out of this corner that he's painted into because, you know, the, they're essentially just reneging on a deal that they made. The Senate has passed uh, bills that align with the deal that was made. And then the House is saying, oh, JK, we actually don't want to do that deal anymore. That's not how deals work. Um, but it is how how they're approaching this right now. So what? how do you move forward on something like that? And then, you know, add to it that I think that there are some policy riders, as you mentioned, that they're going to try to insist on, whether that's, um, you know, defunding DEI in the Department of Defense or, um, you know, Tuberville's crazy abortion thing um, that says you can't reimburse service people for um, traveling to get abortion services, um, or uh, they're saying that they need to do something about the border, but that um, money isn't sufficient, that they want to reform the asylum system through this. Oh, well, good luck with that. That's definitely like super easy. Let's just do that real quick while we're trying to figure out this government funding situation. So I think the spending levels are a huge problem. And then you add to it some of these absolutely red line issues for Democrats. And I'm like, I just don't know how how we move forward. Yeah, we do. I mean, the 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 spending problem is a very real problem. And now it's very obvious that that's nobody's focus, not even Republicans who say it's their focus. So just as a quick follow up to that, how willing do you think uh, Democrats are going to be, Democrats in the House are going to be to, to step in and pass a continuing resolution? even if McCarthy was willing to give up the gavel and keep the government open? I think the continuing resolution piece um, rides on two things. One is, are there crazy policy riders? Um, if it's clean, then that's obviously much more likely. The other is the timing. And, you know, the Democrats think that if they extend this uh, ACR is what we call them, continuing resolution. If you pass a CR um, that backs up to the holidays, then their hand is going to be strengthened, right? Because nobody wants to shut the government down around Christmas. Um, so the again, the Freedom Caucus people or the authoritarian caucus of the Freedom Caucus is um, asking that a CR go beyond Christmas so that you take that kind of threat of the, you know, members wanting to go home for the holidays off the table um, and make it less painful to do a shutdown. So um, I think there's a lot of maneuvering even in a CR to say, um, when's the next time we are going to have to have this conversation and people trying to position themselves to be in a better bargaining position for that next round. Yeah. Zach, I know, I know, sorry, I saw you nodding there. What What do you think a weakening McCarthy, especially with the, you know, with the power moving toward the, let's call them the authoritarian caucus now, right? I think that's good. Uh, impact the persuadable voters we targeted in 2020, the Lincoln Project. Yeah, I think for starters, I, I sort of view Kevin McCarthy as the interim speaker at this point. I think that his days are numbers, like he's toast. He's Insurrectionist toast. He, interim speaker, yes. Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, he, he tried to ride the tiger and he wasn't that good at it. You know, and I also think a thing that that makes his actions make more sense to me. Some, every now and then they'll talk about him as a deal maker. He's not. He's an appeaser. But now he's reached a point where appeasement isn't viable mm. and he's screwed because he's not a deal maker. Mm. Um, he's weak. I would argue he's made history. So good for him. He's the weakest speaker in modern history. Uh, and I think how does it impact the voters? Well, 
Uh, I worked the 2013 campaign for Terry McAuliffe in Virginia when Ted Cruz shut down the government. And thank you, Ted Cruz, for delivering the governorship to Terry McAuliffe. Uh, I think it's going to backfire, you know, you know, explosively. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I think I think he's screwed. I think that he is he's completely backed himself into a corner. I don't think that I don't think there's any really way for him to get out of this smoothly. And I think the impeachment is going to be off the rails from day one as well. The impeachment attempt. Yeah. Yeah. OK, so. On the flip side of this is um, how all of this will impact uh, Joe Biden um, and the and the broader 2024 election. So last week uh, in our plus segment, Mike Madrid and Lucy Caldwell and I were discussing the MAGA Republicans in Wisconsin who are uh, mulling over impeaching a Supreme Court justice to protect their gerrymandered maps. And, Matt, and Mike made a really impassioned point that the impeachment inquiries, both that one and this one, uh, are going to accrue to Democrats' benefit. So um, I think Mike actually made a really compelling argument here. And you know, one point is that this is an enormously risky gambit for Republicans, obviously, because if the inquiry doesn't turn up sufficient evidence of wrongdoing by the president himself and or they fail to rally enough votes to actually impeach him and send charges to the Senate, uh, they are going to have to wear this as an embarrassing and shameful waste of time Instead of focusing on issues Americans care about and that'll hurt them, uh, here's what Mike said. I'm quoting, and to believe that somehow people are willing to overthrow the government and use all of these tools of power and lie about elections and take Russian money, you are somehow going to, you know, be able to rationally adjudicate this stuff. It's not going to happen. So let's just quit it. Let's realize that this is a really tremendous, significant annoyance and get stronger on the battlefield, recognizing they're getting weaker. Uh, Former Obama White House Press Secretary Robert Gibbs said politically this might be the best thing that's happened to Joe Biden in a year and a half. Uh, NBC News reported that Donald Trump's highest approval rating was the week before his first impeachment. Um, so I w- put these things on the table to all of you, and anybody can jump in here. But one, what do you make of that case as it applies to the Biden impeachment inquiry? Um, how would you counsel Democrats to tailor the way they talk about it? Um, and just to throw my two cents in here, I don't like the futility argument, which is to say, you know, they're, they're, they're wasting time. Uh, impeachment articles would be dead on arrival in the Senate, so it doesn't make sense. I don't think that argument holds water on principle because that's not what we said about the impeachment against Donald Trump, both of them. So I don't like that argument, but um, maybe you do. Uh, uh, let's go around the horn here. Who wants to start? Anyone that says with certainty what's going to happen uh, around an impeachment inquiry, I'm a little skeptical of. I don't think that anybody actually knows how it's going to play out. I think that we can guess. We can make an educated guess. I think it probably backfires for Republicans. We just don't know what they're going to find or not find. Um, and I think at the end of the day, Hunter Biden has made such a mess for his dad. But the one silver lining of it is if we're talking about how big of a screw up Hunter Biden is or the impeachment inquiry, we're not talking about how visibly and observably old Joe Biden is. And I think that is an even greater problem than anything that is likely to come of the impeachment inquiry. I mean, I agree that none of us have a crystal ball and certainly have been wrong uh, about a lot of my predictions in the last eight years. Um, But, you know, I do think in general in politics, I think attacks land when they confirm what a voter already worries about with a candidate. And I don't think that what most 
swing voters or folks that are still open to hearing from Biden are worried about is that he's sneaky and corrupt and, you know, um, on the take and getting secret money from China. Like they have other concerns, but I don't think those are it. And I think, you know, add that together with the fact that um, 14 months in political years is 120 years. Like, I just don't know. Um, you know, whether this is still going to be a conversation. It will certainly be a conversation for, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and the authoritarian caucus, but for like real human people um, next summer and next fall, because there's a lot that can happen between now and then. Um, But I do think on the messaging point that I agree, the futility thing is like, okay, whatever. And also the, they're wasting time and they should be doing other stuff. Like they're, they're always wasting time with something. Like, I just, I don't think that people are sitting around being like, oh, Kevin McCarthy's really wasting my time right now. Like they just don't think about him that much. Um, But I do think that the idea that this is political retribution at the direction of President Trump is much more powerful and is also true. (laughs) So I think that, you know, that that is an argument that I would continue to make. It happens to, you know, accord with reality. Um, and Trump is going to keep saying it out loud. And I think that, you know, that doesn't sit particularly well with people, um, whether it's because they wish Congress was focused on something else or they just don't particularly like Trump and they don't like a bunch of members of Congress just doing his bidding and, you know, taking his phone calls. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I failed to mention that, but uh, but several of these members have reported they've talked to Trump on the phone. He's talked about it. Like this is very much with his involvement, if not explicit direction. So, yeah, for sure, Jim. You know, I'm reminded of the scene from Arrested Development where Lindsay asks, "Did it ever work for these people?" And Tobias says, "No, it never does, but it may work for us." <laughs> and when it's you know whether it's shutting down the government or impeachment. That's that's the GOP in a nutshell. It no, nothing has worked. No impeachment has ever really paid off for them. I mean, you can I quibble about Clinton, but I don't think it paid off for the GOP. Um, you know, uh, shutting down the government has never worked for them, and it never will. And they're just kind of ignorant like that. And when it comes to these, when I was talking about ebbing and flowing earlier, when it comes to these high points like we're in right now, where Chip Roy who my colleague Tim Miller wrote is a cowardly goldfish. And I think it's a good assessment of him. Uh, but like Chip Roy and the cohort of those, you know, whatever Murph called them, the uh, something, something caucus. The authoritarian I, caucus. Authoritarian caucus. I think of them like Somali pirates and Captain Phillips. Like they're <laughs> like, they have control of a, like a, Mer- a Maersk, you know, sea liner and they don't know what to do. And that's like when I see Chip Roy down there kind of like doddering on the floor, it's just like, oh, man, the pirates took over, you know, the the U.S. House of Representatives. They don't know what to do now. Like, what do we do? And so it's just that's just like those times when those folks have that power, when that when those stars align, it's just they don't know what to do. And for the most part, and I, I, I used to be friendly with Chip. I had such hopes for him he's not a legislator, you know, there's, you know, show horse, there's legislators, appropriators, you know, show horses, work horses. He was a former chief of staff for Ted Cruz. Like he's a staffer. He's a smart guy. He used to be a normal guy, but I see him now kind of doddering on the floor whenever like they're in the throes of their power and they're, but they don't, and they've never known how to effectively harness that. They've never really gotten the outcome they wanted. Compromise thankfully has always won. The number of times I have said I had such hopes for that guy 
of my former clients and friends. Um, I, I feel you. Go ahead, Lene. I just want to pick up on the kind of opposite of, um, because now you said the word doddering, which made me think of this, um, you know, the, the attack that is landing on Biden is that he isn't with it anymore. He's too old. And I think actually these two kind of statements that the uh, impeachment is now being hung on um, just actually kind of reinforce that, right? That um, in it, to Joe Biden's benefit, not the doddering part, but um, can you see a situation in which this president would just like answer the phone with his son and be like, oh, hey, what's going on? And not really know who's in the room? A hundred percent. I've actually seen this happen in live real time because we did an event when he was vice president and one of our staff members ran up to him and handed him a phone and was like, it's my grandson's birthday. Can you please say hi to him? And you, you know, Joe Biden's walking off. He's having a whole conversation with this dude. He doesn't know who he is. He's like five minutes off with this person's cell phone. So I 100% believe that he accidentally talked to a whole bunch of people that Hunter had hanging around. Does that reinforce the idea that, you know, he's he's getting backroom deals? No. Does it reinforce the idea that he kind of, you know, is walking around talking to people he doesn't know? Yeah. But I think that gets you on the he's innocent side, um, although yeah. it does reinforce some of the age issues. Yeah. Yeah. Zach. That is such a great Joe Biden story. Uh, I, I also just want to say, like, as a Democrat, I do not have sympathy for Hunter Biden. I, I find that he has lived a sympathetic life in some ways, but he's a grown person. He has made some really, really bad decisions and he's going to have to face the consequences of those now. And it's a shame that he's dragged his dad into it. And I think that he should really wrestle with that and feel terrible for what he's done to his to his dad. Because I agree with Lene, I don't think that it's likely that, that, that Joe Biden has done anything criminal here. He's made errors of judgment, potentially. Um, you know, I think the challenge, though, is something doesn't have to be a crime to look really bad. And it seems to me like there's some stuff here that's just going to make him look bad. It's going to be understandable. It's his son. His son's a fuck up, but he loves him. Uh, but it's going to make him look potentially bad. And so to that, I say, if Hunter goes to jail, I am not going to lose a second sleep over it. I don't feel any sympathy towards him. And I, I think we're seeing fewer and fewer Democrats willing to defend Hunter. And I don't think that anybody really should. I think his actions are indefensible. Yeah. Yeah. We had a, this reminds me of a really good conversation Lucy and Susan and I had a while back, maybe a couple weeks ago about, you know, what, what should Biden say, if anything, about all of this stuff? And really when you game it all out from a, from a, you know, put your PR strategy hat on, really the only thing he can say is, I love my son. And that's it. Like nothing else. There's really nothing else to be said here because anything else gets him in trouble. Let's talk a little bit more about this running again stuff, because on Wednesday, uh, one of the president's favorite columnists, David Inaccius, wrote a column in The Washington Post with a very blunt headline, President Biden should not run again in 2024. And Ignatius praised Biden for passing some of the most important domestic legislation in recent decades, I'm quoting, but called on Biden to drop out of the 2024 race. And he noted Biden's age. Uh, he would be 82 at the start of his second term. Um, you know, most listeners will know this, but just to set the table, uh, in a recent AP poll, 77% of the public and 69% of Democrats said he's too old to be effective for four more years. Um, Ignatius also focused on potential problems that could arise from uh, Vice President Kamala Harris being on the ticket again in 2024. And she's even less popular than Biden. At her approval rating is only 39.5%, according to 538. So there's been a lot of discussion, even, even now, about 
uh, Joe Biden's age. Um, and we saw in the New York Times this week that it's expanding to both Biden and Trump's ages. But this is not just happening on the fringe right, and it's not just happening on Fox News. Right now, the call is coming from inside the House. And the question remains whether this will create a change uh, in the conversations about re-election in the West Wing and within the Biden campaign. All sources that I've seen anonymously reported have said, no, this is not a conversation. Um, and the window is very is very rapidly closing for him to um, to announce his withdrawal from the race uh, and and give a Democratic primary a chance to get started. Um, so it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Um, I, you know, and, you know, from a from a positionality standpoint, it makes perfect sense. He has the incumbency. He, you know, any incumbent would be doing exactly what Joe Biden is doing right now. Um, and and yet you have to wonder um, what would it take to 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 start that conversation? Um, a. I don't think the window is closing. I think the window is shut, painted shut, weatherproofed. Like, you know, there's a lot, there's storm windows on, there's, it's closed. <laughs> and, you know, I was uh, listening to uh, the super smart Sarah Longwell talk about this on on one of the Bulwark podcasts uh, earlier this week. And she was like, yeah, he's old and no one likes Kamala Harris. I've been saying this for approximately two and a half years. Welcome. Everyone else just all of a sudden was like, wait, this guy's kind of old. And now everyone else is talking about it. Like he's been the age he is the entire time. Like This is not news. And I think um, the Ignatius column was just um, so frustrating because even within it, he gave exactly the reasons why it would never work. He said, oh, and there's no one else that could easily step in. That's been the problem the whole time. You know, none of us who want to win this election want to go back to the 2019 summer debates where we're raising our hands for who likes open borders more. Like, this is mm -hmm. not a good way to win swing voters. Like, there is not an heir apparent. And the heir apparent would obviously be Kamala Harris. Well, that's problematic, too, for the reasons we outlined. Getting rid of Kamala Harris and putting, you know, a white lady from Michigan on the ticket instead also extremely problematic in the Democratic coalition. So he built in all the exact reasons why his argument completely falls apart in this column. And I just don't think it's helpful. I'm like, okay, are you on the side of wanting to reelect uh, an authoritarian insurrectionist as president, or are you on the side of not doing that? And if so, you're on the side of Joe Biden, you're on his team and stop trying to take shots at your own team. Yeah. Jim and Zach uh, and Linnea has talked a lot about this, and 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 I have too. But I want to give you guys a chance to weigh in on how this raises the stakes for what happens with the the potential soon to be no label third party announcement. Because with this degree of intensity around uh, you know concern for the age of both candidates, but in particular Biden, um, how 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 you read what they're doing, Jim? Yeah. So. Kind of piggybacking on what Lene was just saying about the coalition that Biden put together. I like to think of it as, do you remember those, like you'd go to the mall and it'd be like a glass sphere that was completely enclosed and had plants and all this other kind of stuff. Remember like the nature and company, that's the Biden coalition. 
and it involves Kamala Harris being his VP and him as president. And you can't change one thing about that coalition or the whole little geodesic dome breaks. Mm. And I think that's why she was saying the door or the window is painted shut. I think it is too. The only way you don't see Biden on the ticket is if like we reenact the movie Dave, you know, like that, that's, that's the only way that's the only exception to the window being painted shut because it's shut. It's going to be Biden Harris, no matter what. For people Biden. who haven't seen Dave. Oh, if you haven't seen Dave, the president, well, he's, you know, he's having an affair and he has a Vladimir Putin-esque stunt double who goes and like waves to crowds to get in the limo so he can have affairs. Mm-hmm. Well, he has a heart attack. So the vice president, so the president's advisors say like, hey, we know we've been asking you to be a security stunt double. Can you like actually be the president? And so it goes through this. But anyway, it's I don't want to spoil film. the ending. It's a great film. Yes. Fantastic film. And it filmed in D.C., Florida Avenue Grill, like all these kind of classics. It's one of the true, you know, like D.C. Cab is another. It's a great D.C. movie. But that's the only scenario is the Dave scenario where we don't end up with Joe Biden as the Democratic nominee. Um, the, a- the age stuff, I mean, A.B. Stoddard is a new colleague of mine, but she's written for us a lot. She's, disc- and she's you know, well-known, not, you know, maybe not David Ignatius level. She's more TV, but um, she she's written columns for us about the age and saying you shouldn't run again. I think Mona Charon's kind of been sympathetic to that, too. Not everyone is where the bulwark, you know, the bulwark. And I got to tell you, when I talk to our readers, they just hate it. The people who love the Biden coalition they're like, no, 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 we just can't talk about it. And my point to them is like, we, you know, look, I, I agree with you. I don't think the age is that big of an issue. Um, but we have to still talk about it. We can't just pretend that doesn't exist. And it really just drives the, the, you know, this, I guess not overwhelming, but large kind of centrist cohort of democratic voters who just, just love Biden. And they're like, leave Joe alone, you know? Uh, they they just don't want to talk about it, and they're annoyed that we keep talking about it. But we have we have to, otherwise we're not doing our jobs. I am curious what you all think about um, whether we should talk about Trump's age more because uh, you know he is seventy seven now. Uh, his age is approximately three thousandth on the list of concerns I have about him, so we don't ever mm-hmm. talk about it. But I I don't know. Do you guys have a viewpoint on whether we can turn that around? I have. St- I have a strong viewpoint on that because look, Trump Trump is ancient too, but like Biden looks older than Trump, right? You know, and and I think you know Trump looks weird and strange of all the stuff that he does, but but <laughs> I think if we highlight Trump's age. All we're doing is highlighting like, yeah, but the other guy looks even older, and isn't that scary? I I actually think I have a slightly different opinion. I I do think the age is an issue. It is it's not a fully prohibitive issue. I will I currently love President Biden. I do not like candidate Biden. Uh, once the primaries are over, once there is truly no other option, no other way, I will learn to love candidate Biden again. But I'm one of the folks who's holding out hope that he will have the good sense to step aside. Mitt Romney just did it. He's he's gotten out of the way to pave the way for new leaders. I think that there's a lot of hubris in Biden saying and, and Biden believing that he is the only one that can get the job done. I do not agree with that assessment. I think that Whitmer realistically could. Newsom, I'm not a huge fan of, but I think that he realistically could. I think um, I think there's there's some really interesting folks in the Democratic Party. I think Wes Moore in Maryland is fantastic. I think that we we would see people elevated that I believe deserve and, and would be it would be beneficial to the country to have elevated because at the end of the day, he's going to be 86 at the end of that term. That's an issue. You know, I, I, 
of my four grandparents, only one made it past 86, you know, and they were all healthy. You know, they, they were active. They ate well. Like the age is an issue. He looks old. He sounds old. He feels old. And also he's so old that how could he possibly be in touch with, with the needs of the, you know, one of the core constituencies of the Democratic Party, young people? Uh, it's time for him to get out of the way. It's time for a new leader. And I hope that he does it. I don't think that he will, but I'm going to hold out hope. From a practical standpoint, I just have to wonder what campaign mode looks like for, for Biden. And I just, I just don't, I just, it's really hard for me to, to envision that. Even if I can get on board with, you know, okay, this isn't going to affect his ability to do the job in the Oval Office, fine. Uh, but he's got to get through what is going to be a really ugly 2024 battle. And his, I just don't know. I just don't know what that looks like. I think his campaign trail just looks like him just only doing presidential events, not yeah. campaign rallies, yeah. like none really, except the convention. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, age and all of this is really kind of a shorthand for perception of age because they're very close in age, but they don't look it. And why is that? I mean, it's not a shock a lot of times that uh, politicians look like the majority of their voters. And if you that apply that to Joe Biden and, you know, pick someone who voted for Joe Biden somewhere in the, you know, the Northeast part of the United States, I guarantee you they probably haven't had a lot of work done to their body. Pick someone the same age, Donald Trump voter in Florida, and I can guarantee you they probably had as much work done as Donald Trump has done to his body going to that maxim. I'm worried about what Donald Trump puts into his body, not just uh, food wise, though I worry about that because I do minus the ketchup, eat like Donald Trump, which is to say very poorly. So, um, <laughs> but you know, I mean, no one talks about that. I mean, like, yeah. uh, they're both te- they're both teetotalers. Biden doesn't drink, neither does uh, Trump. Um, you know, we don't know if Trump is, uh, has ever done kind of any uppers or that kind of stuff, but he always has that sort of energy, but he, he tans, he does all this kind of stuff, puts horrible stuff in his body that I think the perception issue, like people don't think he's old, but they think he's like, you know, a, a heart attack away, right? Yeah, right, right. He's definitely on that Ozempic, right? Yeah. We're going to see a new Trump in a few months here, for sure. Okay, let's switch gears. Last Friday, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit ruled uh, on a case called Missouri v. Biden that the Biden White House, top government health officials, and the FBI likely violated the First Amendment by its coordinated effort to influence the tech company's decisions to censor or delete posts related to the coronavirus and elections. And the three-judge panel uh, came to a unanimous decision that the White House had, quote, coerced the platforms to make their moderation decisions by way of intimidating messages and threats of adverse consequences. They also found that the White House, quote, significantly encouraged the platform's decisions by commandeering their decision-making process, both in violation of the First Amendment. The case is the most successful salvo in the growing legal and political effort to limit coordination between the federal government and tech platforms. And this new injunction supersedes uh, an original temporary injunction, which we may have mentioned on this show, I don't remember, uh, from the district court judge that was overly broad in its scope and affected a much wider range of government departments and agencies. Um, Nevertheless, the appeals court's ruling now explicitly prohibits the White House, the Surgeon General's Office, the CDC, the FBI, and other specifically named individuals, including White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, from making any effort to coerce or significantly encourage social media companies to remove, delete, suppress, or reduce, including through altering their algorithms, posted social media content containing protected free speech. 
Uh, as of right now, we don't know whether the Justice Department will appeal, uh, but if they did, it would head directly to the Supreme Court. Um, and this is something I've been watching really closely, uh, the, the free speech discussions specifically and the law around them. I think there are people who might say, hey, this is coming from the Fifth Circuit, uh, which has become a prime venue for conservative cases, and they don't have a great track record in front of the Supreme Court. All of these judges are reported by Republicans. Uh, but most people and most voters are going to see this story and say the White House violated the First Amendment. And I think there is a, a really legitimate reason to be concerned about certainly the way the federal government um, puts its thumbs on the scale of protected speech. And, um, and I wonder, first, let's start there. How do you think that will filter out to the American public? Ron, can I... Can- I have an idea. Can I yeah. ask you a question? Since you follow this case closely that I have. So you say that yeah. it's unanimous ruling, Fifth Circuit, conservative, saying that they, they violated the First Amendment. But as part of the injunction, are they now not limiting Corinne John St. Pierre's speech and the White House's free speech? That's a good question. And that is a really critical question because it is very well established that the government has a point of view and it gets to express that point of view. So the reason I want to talk about this, um, and you know, we'll probably have a separate legal discussion at some point with some legal experts, is because the law around First Amendment speech and specifically around what the government can and can't say is getting grayer, and there are some open questions that are almost certainly headed to the Supreme Court. So um, in this case, they are saying that they can't excessively uh, do these things and that what the evidence they reviewed uh, demonstrates is that they they were engaged, at least in some instances. Uh, a lot of this came out of the Twitter files reporting uh, that, that these agencies were coordinating to suppress protected speech. So there's a real question here about where that line is. And I think one of the big questions that will have to come before the court, uh, hopefully next term, is where's the line between coercion and persuasion? Because the government is allowed to make a case to persuade people. It is not allowed to coerce them. And if you read some of the exchanges, some of the email messages uh, that were part of the record here, it is pretty alarming the way a lot of the White House staff specifically were communicating to their, um, their let's say, counterparts at the, at, at, for that example, Facebook and Twitter, um, almost, almost yelling at them or talking to them as if they were their own employees. Uh, you must do this ASAP. Um, and so, and there were threats as well of potential legal action if they didn't, uh, you know, if they didn't cooperate or do exactly what the what the request was at the moment. So that's a really good question. It is, it is the open legal question. And I suppose there's, you know, a difference. I mean, you are limiting one speech. If you were to say have an injunction that would prevent White House employees from sending those emails or making those phone calls, right? Um, because that is probably a little bit more coercive here is what we saw in the case. But it would not be a total abridging of their speech uh, to say that Corinne couldn't go out on the podium and say the White House strongly believes that social media companies should not be amplifying Dr. Quack's report, you know, mm-hmm. or whatever whatever the issue is. Um, and you could maybe argue that that's coercion, and and you know, but if they just say it and they don't have a you know a and if they don't, you know, threat, then that, you know, that's that's freedom of speech. And they're not co- trying to coerce. They're just expressing their view. Right. Yeah. I think yeah, threat that's a, that's is really, really point, the right? threat is the the operative word here. Right. You are you are allowed to sp- 
express your view. You are not allowed to threaten people, particularly if you're the government, because, um, you know, the First Amendment is a protection from the government. Um, so you certainly, you know, can't use your government authority to threaten companies to do something. Um, and I think it's interesting how this case was covered because it actually made it way, way, way narrower than the district court's ruling. So, um, the, you know, the headline was fifth circuit says white house violated first amendment, but actually what they did was throw out nine of 10 of the, um, pieces of the district court opinion and they really narrowed the 10th one and the the last one that's that's standing including by saying the state department didn't threaten anyone so they're not implicated here um the cybersecurity folks didn't threaten anyone so they're not implicated here they narrowed the people that it applied to um and also what the implications are moving forward um and i do find that interesting in particular because i saw that two of the judges on this panel are judges that i very, very strongly tried to not get on the bench back when I worked on judicial nominations a hundred years ago, because they were super, super conservative out of the mainstream of conservative at that point. Now the mainstream has shifted to the point where I don't even know where they lie now. But um, you know, Edith Brown Clement was seen as a potential Supreme Court nominee for George W. Bush. It's why we were so worried that she would be elevated to the appellate court. So um, because she was kind of being groomed for his next Supreme Court um, nomination. And so I think if People like Edith Brown Clement and Jennifer Elrod, these Fifth Circuit super, super conservative judges, um, are saying the district court was way out of line. That's good. And I think they're probably getting closer to um, where the Supreme Court might end up on something like this, narrow, more narrowly tailoring it um, and saying, yes, you're allowed to have an opinion. You're allowed to be concerned about disinformation and do something about it. Um, you are not allowed to threaten people or companies, um, but you are allowed to go a lot further towards that line than the district court said you could. Zach, I want to get your take, and then I then I have uh, another sort of thing I want to put on the table to open this up a little bit more broadly. Yeah, you know, I think COVID it, it changed so much, and, and it raised so many interesting questions, right? And, and and to me, I think the big question here is how do we balance free speech with public health moving forward? Uh, and that's that doesn't just apply to COVID or or illness; it applies to something like climate change. You know, if there's a hurricane that is going to hit somewhere and it's likely to cause great damage, and somebody says just stick around. You're totally fine. Don't worry about it. And they've got a big reach. What is the role of these companies? What is the role of the government? And I don't know that anybody has the answer yet. I think that there is a, a robust conversation to be had around here. And so, Ron, thank you so much for raising this and, and for and everyone, for, you know, y'all have been so insightful. I think this is the start of the conversation. I don't think that the answer, I don't think the answer is clear yet. And I think that it's going to change issue to issue. It's going to change year to year. It's going to change administration to administration, but it's going to be something that's going to be with us in the future uh, for a long, long time. Okay. So here's, I want to open the aperture of this conversation a little bit. Earlier this week, um, in a discussion I was having with um, Yasha Monk, you all may know him, the liberal political scientist, uh, which will be out next week. I mentioned a point that Greg Lukianoff, who's the president of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, had made in a completely separate context and before this appeals ruling came out, um, that for me really distilled why this question is so important to public trust. And I want to play that clip and then we can, um, then we can open this up. We 
need much more serious commitment to actual reforms for higher education. I think we need institutions that actually are better insulated from public pressure that can help us, you know, have more confidence in what our experts are actually producing. Because, and here's the most pernicious thing about cancel culture, is that it leads very quickly to an American public that says, wait a second, if I've heard a single story of one of you experts get losing their job over having the wrong opinion on whatever it is from like COVID to public policy to whatever, of course, like the trans issues is, is some of the most radioactive stuff. If I hear about even one example of someone actually like losing their job or being threatened with losing their job, that makes me aware of the fact that there's huge social pressure for experts to actually conform their opinions. And one of the major points we're making in canceling the American mind is that it's devastating to people's trust and belief in experts. So I've even been thinking about attempts to recreate ivory tower institutions that are better insulated from public pressure that can actually be more relied upon. Because I left doing the research for canceling of the American mind quite cynical so this isn't a conversation about higher education and the phenomenon of experts being pressured to conform their opinions to a particular, you know, or, or orthodoxy of thought. And that's separate from the matter of whether the government can or should or how much they should be able to, where the line is between persuasion and coercion, for example, when they're talking to social media companies about things they don't like. But the question for me comes down to the same thing, which is um, the the problem of expertise now has a lot to do with the questions being asked and what dissenting views are allowed, uh, where dissenting views fit within the context of, for example, the science around COVID. So some of the material that was censored as a result of this pressure campaign, for example, would have been uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who's a, um, a medical professor at Stanford or there's a Harvard epidemiologist. These guys had all of the credentials to offer dissenting views about the way the CDC, for example, was going about public health policy. And yet they had um, they had a very difficult time getting those views out there. And I think the record now is vindicating some of what they had to say anyway. And so I worry about the trust in institutions when it becomes obvious to people that um, that experts disagree and there's a preferred narrative that is uh, that is that is winning in the in the censorship wars. Anyway, how do you all view this? Do you see this as a, as big a problem as I do? No. Um, okay. Go ahead. I don't think it, I don't I don't think this case is sexy enough. You know, like you have to really be online and like part, very partisan, whatever your partisanship is, to really kind of get to this kind of stuff. You couldn't sell this on a local news broadcast. Well, you know, did the government lock him up and not let him type on his computer? No. Okay. Like, did it get deleted from GoDaddy? No. Like, you know, was he like, did, did his bank close his account? No. It just, the, the, the reach was limited. Yes, that's suppression of speech. No, the government shouldn't have done it. But like, it was, it, it really isn't like, I think <sighs> Americans think censorship in the extreme, like in the movies, like you're getting locked up and prevented from speaking. Um, and so even though that's not exactly what the definition is, that's what the American voter thinks. So it's just, it's not going to land and really matter, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. This certainly isn't going to be something somebody brings up randomly in a focus group that I'm doing next week. Um, but I do think that people have a perception that 
there were dissenting opinions that were stifled during the beginning, middle, maybe even end of the COVID debate and uh, public health emergency. So I do think that that that's probably a pretty widely held view. Um, and that is important and important to talk about, as Zach said, moving forward. But trust in institutions requires our institutions to be trustworthy enough to earn that. And what I'm worried about is that insurrectionist speaker Kevin McCarthy is not trustworthy enough to earn that, nor are a bunch of other people that are in positions of power in one of the two major parties. And so the problem and the, and the you know, fear of these dissenting opinions being out there, I'm not saying that it's right, but the fear was that the crazy people were going to use that to tell you to go drink bleach. And you know what? That was real. Like that was real. And I don't know how to deal with the fact that one party has been so fully captured by people who are willing to say things that they know are false. They, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz went to Ivy League schools. These are smart humans who know that those things are false and they say them anyways. And so if that's the person you're trusting, I just, I don't know how we operate. Like, I don't know how you have a, um, a competition of ideas when one set of the people that are supposed to be representing our one half of our country are not willing to have a conversation about facts and are actively lying to the American people. And Lene, on that, you know what scares the heck out of me talking about trust and governance, competence, and leadership? Mitch McConnell. Yeah. It's the, yeah. it's the end of the Mitch McConnell era. That's right. And you're talking about Ted Cruz, you're talking about Josh Hawley, people who do know better, who are smart enough and know they're lying. And we all know that they're lying, but they do it anyway. Who's going to take over for Mitch McConnell? You know, especially if there's an impeachment or a shutdown, you know, is big John Cornyn going to do it? You know, it's going to be one of the Johns or like, is like JD Vance going to come out of the woodwork? Like it could, it could be some really scary stuff. Yeah, you know, I think going back to uh, you know how how scared are we about this run? I'm I am not as concerned about it as as you are, but I am concerned about it because I think I have an opinion that is now unpopular, which is that being exposed to bad opinions is actually a good thing. I think nothing made me more sure that I am not a libertarian than listening to a libertarian explain their views to me. It was great. I was like, oh wow, like Rhodes, your whole case falls apart. Uh, and, and, and so I think that it is good to be pushed. It's good to be challenged. It's good to hear things that, are, that, are, that make you uncomfortable. The challenge, and I think Lene really art articulated this well, is when people are just telling outright lies, they're saying things that are just discern, you know, provably factually incorrect, it makes it really challenging because then it's not oh, this person has arrived at a weird conclusion or has a bad, you know, a, a strange opinion. It's they're telling a lie and that makes everything more challenging. And, and so that's 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 going to be the one of the points of tension in the modern era, especially with, uh, you know, if, if X, uh, formerly known as Twitter, continues to, to bleed view, bleed users, where do people gravitate to? What kind of algorithms do they set up? You know, what happens if Facebook and Instagram, you know, have totally different algorithms? We just, we just don't know how the algorithms are going to, promote these opinions. And so while I believe very, very strongly, it's good to see bad opinions, it's good to be challenged. I don't really know how we're going to be able to prevent these these outright falsehoods and outright lies. And that to me is the tension. Yeah, I think that is exactly the tension. And I, and I, and I think there's a lot 
there are a lot of legal questions that still need to be cleared up because the jurisprudence on this is getting murkier, as I said earlier. So why are you so worried about it? Tell us, tell us a little bit. What's, what is the fear? Where does it come from for you? What's, what's, what's the reason? Yeah, I worry uh, as Greg does, and I've talked to him about this on the show, that it isn't enough to have strong First Amendment protections because First Amendment law can't continue um, uh, without a good culture of free speech. So that free speech law essentially requires free speech culture. And what we've lost, I think, in the name of very understandable concerns about the effects of the spread of, I don't even use these words anymore, misinformation and disinformation, um, but I'm going to use them here for talking purposes. Uh, But now after talking to people who've studied that phenomenon, they don't use those words. They don't like those words um, because one person's misinformation is another person's opinion. And what I worry is that if we go down this road of people in positions of power or who are seen as the elites getting to choose what is true and what is not true and, uh, and doing that by way of suppressing lots of different opinions and dissenting views, um, then we lose free speech culture and we lose the ability to have trust in, um, in I trust in institutions. Yes, but trust in almost everything. It trust in general begins to break down everywhere. And, and I worry about the cynicism that that breeds um, because we desperately need expertise. Science works because of dissenting views. That, that, is, that is literally the part of the scientific method. And the reason we have good science is because we have scientists who are free to ask questions and come to differing conclusions. And then those people get together and they find out who's wrong and who's right about any number of questions. And if you stifle that process, and I'm just using science as an example, but I think that's actually emblematic of the way we seek, we seek for truth um, in general. If you stifle that process or if you short circuit it, um, then I think everybody loses. And so that's, that's one off the cuff reason I'm concerned about it. Have, have you guys had Tom Nichols on the show to talk yes. about the death of, okay. Yeah. Yes. I mean, he, Tom's a good co-sign. Friend. Yeah. Yeah. Co-sign all of that. And you know, the, the populace is way more confident in its opinion right now. And, uh, that's, that's, I think a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also think though, I think sometimes we let the experts off the hook a little bit, right? You know, let's go back to 2020. It was a scary time. Of course, we were going to get things wrong. But let's be clear. We did get a lot of things wrong. We didn't, we didn't get everything wrong. Didn't get the majority of things wrong. But we got some things wrong. And no one ever said sorry. Nobody ever said we got this wrong. And people who, you know, were shamed or yelled at for having an opinion that maybe has been since proven to be uh, a little bit more reasonable are pissed off about it still. And I think that it undermined the credibility of the experts that no one ever said sorry. No one ever like had an open and honest conversation about how we ended up getting these things wrong. I actually think the conversation of how do we get some of the stuff wrong that we got wrong, great example being school closures. How do we get that so wrong? What was the why there? I think if we had a more public dialogue around that, I think it would actually bring some folks back into the fold because the way that they got there, it will make sense if they explain it. But nobody wants to talk about it because nobody, nobody likes to raise their hand and say, hey, I was wrong. Whoopsies. And that's what they really need to do. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, thank you for that question. Okay, what are you watching under the radar, over the radar, wherever it happens to fly, Jim? Uh, I just got to say, as a parent of six-year-old, almost six-year-old twins, whenever anyone questions the government shutdown of schools, I just say, 
when the new school year starts and you immediately start getting sick, just think, imagine if that was COVID. Shutting, shutting the schools down was necessary. I'm sorry. I will defend that to the death of me. Uh, the story I'm watching under the radar is in Arkansas. Uh, Governor uh, Sarah Sanders uh, is proposing, uh, with help of allies in the legislature, a FOIA reform bill that would have severely curtailed the press's availability to determine how she was using taxpayer resources like a government plane, because uh, there were stories that she was using to fly this plane like 30 miles, you know, <laughs> routinely. And it was just sitting there. It was like, it would have been faster to drive, almost always. And uh, the people with whom she is flying, and she's try. It was a very sweeping bill. There was a huge uproar, um, and I'm still sorting through what's going on. But late last night, the Arkansas Senate passed a very pared down version of it. It's still bad, but it's not nearly as bad as it once it was proposed. But uh, they called a special session for this thing, so she had hoped to kind of rush it through. But it turns out she didn't really count the votes. <sighs> The fact that Sarah Huckabee Sanders is a governor of a state now is just a drawer in the filing cabinet I don't ever like to open. She, but she has she has I think she has this PTSD from the Red Hen incident uh, because this is this is all ostensibly about her security, you know. I was the only White House press I was the first White House press secretary who needed a secret service detail and it's it's just like okay, you know, uh, a journalist I was talking to, I'm going to write about this at the Bulwark in Arkansas, says she's a lot like her dad when he was governor. He has very, very thin skin, the Huckabees do. Mm. For those who don't know what Jim's talking about, the Red Hen incident was a a moment in time when Sarah Huckabee Sanders was harassed for something at a restaurant in D.C. called the Red Hen. Um, Lene, what do you got? So do you remember when we passed the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act? It was the bipartisan bill that passed after Uvalde and so many other mass shootings um, where we actually passed gun safety legislation that was significant for the first time in 30 years. Um, There was a provision in that bill that was little noticed and now has become very important. And it involves the definition of being engaged in the business of selling guns. So right now, the reason that some people have to conduct background checks and others don't is because if you have a brick and mortar store and you're selling guns out of it, you have to have a license for that. You're a federally licensed firearms dealer. You have to conduct background checks. If you're selling them out of your trunk or at a gun show or on armslist.com, which is the scariest place on the internet or anywhere else, you don't. Well, That was a problem because people were selling massive amounts of firearms without conducting background checks, um, and that's where some of these mass shooters have gotten their their guns. Uh, So the Biden administration was able to just put out a new regulation to redefine that because um, that's what the bipartisan group wrote into the bill was a new definition. Now it just says if you are selling your guns for profit, um, then you have to conduct a background check. So this essentially could completely close the gun show loophole, the internet loophole, and make it so that we really don't ever have to go back and pass universal background checks. And so this rule came out. I haven't seen a an inkling of anything from any of the Republicans complaining about it. 
And in the next 90 days, it'll be finalized. And we may in fact have near universal background checks so that people who are selling, you know, getting rid of their their collection of guns and or want to sell to their nephew or something like that still don't have to conduct background checks. But if you are at a gun show selling 50 AR-15s, you have to conduct background checks now. So I am hoping that the final rule holds. I am very um, optimistic because of the fact that nobody started yelling about it. I haven't heard anything about That's it. It's astonishing, actually. It's crazy. It's a yeah. huge change. Um, so cross your fingers. I'm only saying it on this podcast and not on the Federalist <laughs> Society thing I was at yesterday because we don't want to call attention to it from people that'll be mad about it. But I just think for people that are, are frustrated that Biden hasn't gotten enough done, really? We might have just closed all of these loopholes around background checks with you know, the pen and the phone. We just bleeped out everything you just said and we'll unbleep it after it's, no, just kidding. <laughs> after it's final. That's right. Uh, but the question is, is this something that could be rolled back under executive order in a, another administration? Absolutely. It's an, it's an okay. ATF rule. So okay. you could re-regulate okay. it under another administration. But um, I think it's promising that, you know, it was bipartisan in its mm. nature. And so, you know, an ATF does not make regulations lightly and certainly not regulations that um, are tougher uh, than the existing ones. So I'm I'm hopeful that that we might be able to hold it. Okay. Zach, what do you got? Perfect. So just circling back to something really quickly. Uh, a moment ago, I said that no one likes to say I was wrong. Somebody else right. Uh, I was wrong <laughs> in how I phrased something and Jim was right. School closures absolutely did need to happen. I think the thing that I was, the point I was trying to raise was that the length of time in some states uh, yeah. that they went on led to, to some pretty significant learning. Well loss. done, Zach. Jim, Jim Gold star. Oh, yeah. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't accusing yeah. you of that. You know, I was just <laughs> saying there, there are yeah. some people who are just like, no school should have shut down ever. And I'm just like, you guys are monsters if you don't have kids because you know, literally the first, if they, the, they've been away from school and then they go back, boom, you're sick that week. I mean, it's... it's Totally, totally. Yeah, no. So I think I think we're on the same page. But I just wanted to, wanted to clarify there. For me, the big one is what's going on with China. Uh, mm. You know, I think it is not not exactly undercovered, but I think that the extent of the the global impact I think is hard to comprehend. I would say it's probably beyond comprehension. Uh, it certainly is for me. You know, there's. I'm going to read a quote from from an article I, I pulled up about this. China's economy was about 77 percent of the size of America's in March 22. Today it is closer to 68 percent. What began as anemic growth is becoming a full implosion. That is the world's second largest economy. It is going very, very poorly. There's well over a billion people there. The impact will be felt globally uh, for quite some time, and it's worth monitoring and keeping an eye on. World's second largest economy, which, by the way, is very intertwined with ours. We need to remember that. Okay. Um, all right. That's it for today. Uh, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, we're going to talk about this uh, chapter from uh, the biography of Mitt Romney, which made me feel a lot of things. I don't know about you guys, uh, and his decision not to run for your election. Where can everybody find you on the internet, Jim? Uh, I'm on uh, Twitter. I'm on Threads and uh, Blue Sky. Uh, mostly, my, my handle is Jim Swift DC, uh, and uh, you can read me and my colleagues at the Bulwark. Terrific, Zach. Uh, I am pretty hard to find in the internet. I got up <laughs> X recently. It's been fantastic. So good luck. I guess I'm on LinkedIn. But what I would say to everybody is get offline. It's great. I spend more time outside, more time with my amazing wife. Uh, it's. I would encourage, so you will not find me. And uh, I would say make it harder to find yourself. Get offline. <laughs> I love that. 
The problem with X is that it, we use that as a placeholder in conversation, so it's a really bad brand name for a social media platform. Anyway, Lene, where can you yeah. be found? Yeah, I don't X anymore either. I mean, every <laughs> once in a while about my sparkle shoes. Is that the verb? Is it content. Xing? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm not doing it, so I don't need to know. Uh, my work is at thirdway.org. Terrific. And uh, I am still Xing around <laughs> at Ronstos, <laughs> Hey, every time you send a link, how comfortable do you feel and confident the link that you sent? <laughs> Literally good. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.